Hello and welcome to the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm your host, Krishan Kupchand, and today's guest is Stephen Jasmine. Now, I've learned an immense amount from Stephen because he, uh, in our first conversation, did something I really loved, which is he gave me some homework. Uh, and that homework being looking into his kind of plethora of interviews that he's done on his work in Guyana and the kind of worldview that's kind of shaped him. So a bit of context here. Stephen's main focus today is oriented around shaping, capturing, and accelerating the generational growth opportunity in Guyana. Before this call, I was reading the 2022 budget speech by the prime minister over there, and um, the projected growth for that year was actually 40%, which is shocking in and of itself. But the actual growth statistics, retroactively, they found were 60%. So this is a you know one of these generational uh, uh, curves that he's kind of surfing and and shaping. So a few more things here. Stephen's background contains some of my favorite patterns that lead to outsized performance in frontier markets. His backgrounds have intersected various fields wherein he now applies ideas like product market fit and crossing the chasm to understand a nation's development and the ways in which that can be shaped. Furthermore, he also understands how oil families have operated and built generational businesses alongside how institutions like Fortune 500 companies tend to work as well and what it means to actually intersect those two things alongside international capital markets. In lieu of that, if you want to learn more about that background, I highly recommend listening to Stephen's other interviews. You can check that out on Spotify, where you type in Stephen Jasmine, and you'll find, in particular, the Rare Birds podcast uh, series is just incredible in terms of you know going thoroughly into that. With that being said, however, the focus here today is one, on contextualizing the Guyana story, and then two, contextualizing how Stephen is operating within that and what that kind of means for the future and moving forward. So without further ado, I would like to say hello to Stephen and ask him to share, uh, I guess, both an introduction of the uh, Guyana backstory and kind of how he came to it, but also what's, what's kind of going on there historically, where have they been, where are they now? And uh, later on, I'll ask him about where it's going in the future. Excellent. Krishan, so pleasure to meet you and appreciate you having me. It's exciting. I always love to talk about Guyana. Many of the listeners here may not have any kind of clue about Guyana, despite it being one of the more exciting stories right now. So if you could, would you be able to kind of like give, I guess, like a bit of a professorial 101 on uh, Guyana and the kind of thesis that exists there right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's funny. I The world works in mysterious ways. And, you know, when I started working in the oil and gas industry back in 2015, um, prior to going down to Guyana in 2017, I did not know where Guyana was even on a map, um, you know, and I didn't realize that it was the poorest country in South America, one of the poorest countries, and had a very interesting history as the only English-speaking country in South America, but also a former British colony, sitting right next to Venezuela, and then Suriname to the west, and French Guiana to the further west, and then Brazil beneath it. And so with that, you know, the country is essentially a member of CARICOM. It's based in the Caribbean community. It is a amazing land of peoples. It's a very ethnically diverse population. Uh, there's, you know, Indo-Guyanese, Afro-Guyanese, uh, Portuguese-Guyanese, Amer-Indian-Guyanese, which are the indigenous Amazonian tribes. And so with that, you know, they also, have, it's a very ethnically diverse country along with a religiously diverse. Uh, it's one of the few places in the world where Muslims, Hindus, and Christians all coexist peacefully, and that's a pretty amazing statement just in and of itself, especially after 
the past 30 years of global religious intolerance and wars that we faced, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to be involved in a country that embraces its history. And, you know, with the fact that it has a current Muslim president, um, you know, it's really one of the few countries in South America that has that kind of worldview and leadership. And I think that's really what's going to help Guyana grow. So why is Guyana, why are we talking about Guyana? How did I find it? You know, what came of it? Well, in 2015, I started working as a chief restructuring officer for some of the families I had been involved with in Louisiana uh, in the form of fractional family office management structure. And in doing that, we ended up, um, you know, as they went bankrupt during the cyclicality of the oil and gas industry in the United States, you know, I was actually working in the oil and gas sector in the U.S. as it was essentially shutting down, for lack of a better. And I know that's going to sound a bit paradoxical, seeing as, you know, fracking has become a big thing in the past decade in the United States. But what happened was the actual cost of production for the offshore industry was too high before the tech run from 2015 to now. And so in doing that, that meant that all the long-term supply contracts in the field had gotten to the end of its life cycle. And it didn't make sense under the historic cost structure to continue to expand the U.S. offshore oil field services play, especially when you have patches like the Balkans and you can do all the fracking. It was just more, much more cost effective to do onshore exploration than offshore because historically offshore is the most expensive kind of exploration. But that being said, you know, in 2015, ExxonMobil from an original projection sharing agreement that was signed back in the early 2000s was given the opportunity or actually finally struck oil right in the middle of that down cycle. And it was a unique opportunity because when, you know, historically over the past decade, there's been a lot of underinvestment and in bringing new supply on in the oil field sector and the oil and gas exploration sector. And don't forget that business is a, you know, a good five to seven year lead time before you actually start seeing dividends or seeing rewards. And so in that, when they were, when they found oil in 2015, by the time 2017 came along, you know, the resource had appraised and grown to about 2 billion plus barrels. And that's when I actually found Guyana. And I was brought to Guyana by very prominent businessmen in the Caribbean and saw kind of what was there, what was, what was happening and where it could go. And that's when I decided to, to go all in because of my relationships up into, you know, Houston with the oil and gas sector, as well as my relationships up into New York and the banking sector, being a former registered Wall Street banker. And then also because of my families I work with out in the Middle East, I knew I could bring a lot of that talent, expertise, and wisdom to Guyana. And a lot of it comes back from my startup skill. And so I saw Guyana as a startup nation. And so in that process, I was really able to, to kind of saw that it was a great place where my disparate skills that I'd grown over the course of my career could all be kind of interwoven together and could create a great opportunity for us to create a firm and a brand to help build literally a country. And so with that, it's been a wild ride. Guyana's got a lot to grow. It's still early innings. You know, I jokingly say, you know, building a country is like running a marathon. And a lot of people want to show up at the, at the end of the race and get the trophy and the award. Mm. Most people don't realize by when you run a marathon, the first time you run a marathon is actually the hundredth time you run a marathon because in the training up to the marathon, you should have run five, six, 10 marathons already preparing yourself for the actual race day. You know, if you're not a professional runner, you don't know that you just think you show up and run a marathon one day, but that's, you know, no one appreciates the years of training and the years of 
you know, the mental skills that you need to develop to be able to successfully run a marathon. And so, you know, what we've been doing with our team, you know, there's about 30 of us now that have banded together and, you know, we are working to become the international asset manager to manage foreign investments in Guyana. Uh, there's no real capacity currently in the country to support international investors. We're helping to build it and develop it. it that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It just means what the second poorest country in South America for 50 years, you know, there was no reason to develop capital markets, you know? And so since that, since we got there in June of 2017, we've opened offices and I've lived in the country for three plus years and really got a chance to understand it and see it and meet all the people. It's a small country, only 800,000 people. And mm -hmm. so now we're in a position where, you know, we're working more outside of the country to help build the platforms and find the right investments and the right investors to help channel and participate in this growth in a responsible way that aligns with, you know, the priorities of the nation of Guyana, the government of Guyana, the people of Guyana, and helps to accelerate that process because there's enough to go around for everyone. And I think that's one thing that, you know, I see kind of coming from my worldview that a lot of, you know, the Guyanese I speak with and the Caribbean people I speak with and the Latin Americans I speak with, you know, they don't appreciate that they're used to living in a country of scarcity. There was never enough food to go around. So if you're sitting at, you know, one table, you're taking food off of someone else's table. And so it's a different mindset and it's a different culture that's developing. And we have to work together to educate and lead people and teach people and, you know, work with the powers that be to help bring more people. So you get that force multiplier effect, because as we all know, you know, it's, a, I think, an old African proverb. If you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a group. But with that, you know, that's where our worldview is and, and we're trying to build out that team and build out that. And we believe that Guyana is in a unique position globally to actually be able to participate in this growth and to lead the world. You know what I mean? When, when this first started, the, you know, in this global macroeconomic contraction that's happening or recession or depression or inflation or stagflation or, you know, whatever theory of economics you want to buy into as to what's happening globally, we can all agree something is happening. I'd like to think. And so in that world, you know, we just had Credit Suisse fail last week. Two weeks ago, we had Silicon Valley Bank. Over the past quarter, you know, the entire crypto industry has blown up between FTX it started. And then depending who you talk to, some people will say Silver Lake and uh, SVB and Signature Banks were all fallouts as in repercussions of the SBX fallout or the FTX fallout, excuse me. And so with that, you know, Guyana has been thrust onto the world stage, whether or not it's ready. And so I liken it to, you know, I, I grew up doing bar and bat mitzvahs and kinseras and all kinds of stuff, um, you know, for, for people coming of age. And so I feel like Guyana is sort of going through that same process right now. It's coming of age. It's been thrust onto the world circuit. It's got a lot of growing. It's got a lot of capacity building. But with that, there's a lot of opportunity, too. And this is where, you know, guys like us, Krishan, get to step in and, 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 and kind of roll up our sleeves and, and act in that, you know, asset manager, fiduciary and leader that comes with it. And there's a lot of responsibility and there's a lot of, you know, headaches that come with it, but there's also a lot of rewards. And, you know, what people have to remember though, this is, you know, this will be my life's op magnum opus working on building the country. You know, and one day I hope to be able to point to Guyana and say that, Hey, I helped build the skyline. Half of those towers or I had my hand in them one way or the other, whether it was just introducing someone that went on to build it or whether it was helping finance it or whether it was help build it. You know I mean? We see, we've created our, our concept and our business in such a way that it can quickly scale an accordion to, to be able to take advantage of a lot of the, the things that are coming, but it can't happen overnight. And it does take time. You know, it takes nine months to make a baby. You know what I mean? So 
Just because you want to have a baby tomorrow doesn't mean you can have one, but it's not going to actually be a functioning human being that's crying and needs it's, you know, it's diapers changed and for at least nine months, you know, that's just the way it works. And Guyana is going through that same sort of system right now and process and growing pairings and the growth process will be challenging, but there's a lot of opportunity. And so looking forward to talking to you today. I really appreciate getting to know you and I'm excited on the platform that you're building and supporting it as best we can. And, you know, love to answer some more questions and, and share my insights with your, with your viewership. Likewise, deeply appreciated that kind of, you know, backstory there. Um, one thing you mentioned right at the beginning was the way in which the ethnic diversity works in this context, right? Where there's a kind of mutual respect amongst the kind of groups. And one uh, anecdote I came across recently, you're talking about kind of nation building, was uh, from a speech by Lee Kuan Yew when he was talking about Singapore versus Sri Lanka and the kind of importance of, in his case, um, the kind of meta policy around that, such that, um, as you mentioned, acknowledging that history and fostering those ties amongst groups makes such a big difference to that underlying stability that enables a nation to kind of grow. And so I appreciated you kind of sharing that. I just wanted to kind of flag that. Um, one question I have here is uh, on that first trip, I'm curious, like, could, would you be able to share a bit more about that first trip when you kind of came here? Because I'm curious also, like it, in many respects, as you mentioned, it's not just the economic opportunity. It's also like an emotional kind of, you know, curiosity as well that kind of comes with uh, uh, shaping these regions. And that therefore enhances the work that you do. This makes it your magnus, magnum opus. If you were just working on, say, you know, uh, some sort of like, you know, middle market insurance company, you probably wouldn't be bringing as much versus here where you're kind of like, again, across so many sectors, pushing things forward. Um, what was our first trip like in uh, Guyana for you? It was amazing. You know, it was the universe works in mysterious ways. And I was, you know, like I said, at the start of the conversation, I had not been to Guyana previously and couldn't even find it on a map. But, you know, when I got there, I just, I could sense opportunity. And I, you know, I talked about this in some of my other interviews that, you know, one of the big things that I saw was that, you know, when you grow up, you, you learn from your elders, you learn from the people around you. It kind of helps shade your worldview. Right. And so I was fortunate enough, my best friend's father, you know, was one of the first Russian nationals that went back to Russia after the wall fell and, and developed the first Western style commercial real estate firm in Russia and ended up playing monopoly with all the oligarchs and, you know, current relations with Russia aside, you know, what I learned in that business or watching him grow up because I was a kid, right? I'm best friends with his son. We're still best friends. He lives in Barcelona. His dad lives in London. You know, they're, they don't, I don't even know how much time they spend in Russia, if any. You know, they're more like most of the Russians that are successful. They go live in London, yes, um, yes. which is your neck of the woods, Krishan. But um, with that, you know, it taught me and I saw just opportunity. And I said, look, you know, here I am. And it started from getting off the plane and us having trouble getting everyone in the same hotel. And so our party actually split into two hotels. And, you know, here I am getting off a plane and there's not enough hotel rooms. There's only two internationally flagged hotels being an outsider and being my first time to, a, you know, somewhere in South America and not having any idea what I was walking into. You know, I, I wanted to stay at an American hotel or an American flagged hotel. So at least I knew kind of what that barometer of service and, and expectation would be. And, um, you know, I got there and I just, you know, met people and I, you know, I, the people I went with introduced me to some people. And then I also just met people on my own. And, you know, what I, what I realized is I fell in love with it. You know, I was fortunate to be introduced to one of the big IOCs and their country manager who I had done a lot of work with that. I see out of Houston. So we had a couple, you know, relationships in common and knew some people. And so it's actually funny that the, the gentleman I spoke with, he had a camp in Louisiana 
And so if you're in the, if you're in the, the oil and gas sector in America, then, and you work out of Louisiana, everyone has what they call camps, which are essentially like hunting lodges or fishing lodges. And okay. so the guy from, uh, one of the IOCs actually had a camp in Louisiana right near where I did all my business when I was in Louisiana. So we kind of hit it off and he took me under his wing and he just showed me, you know, that this place isn't scary and that it's happening, it's growing. And, you know, we talked about a couple of initial projects, which never came to pass, but, you know, it was sort of that welcome open arms. Hey, there's, there's someone else from Louisiana here. You know, <laughs> it kind of made me comfortable that I could figure this out and kind of, you know, figure out which way is up and, and see where the journey came or would take me. And, you know, it's part of my personality too. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I, I'm a hacker. I, I've done a lot in the cyber world over the years, um, you know, cybersecurity and things like that. And so with that, I looked at Guyana as a blank slate. It's, it's a tabula rasa. You know what I mean? There's, there's, we could do whatever we want in this country. And so legitimately and legally, of course, but my point is, is that when you have that kind of blank canvas, you know, the world is your oyster. And it just, it seemed like a really great way to combine my skill sets and to create value because I will admit my skill sets are a bit unique and you know, they're, you know, it's very hard to find the right opportunities that can leverage them appropriately. And so this has obviously become, you know, an amazing, you know, ride and journey. And it's still in the early innings, you know, it's, I'd say we're still on our first date to having a kid, you know, as to where Guyana is in the process, you know, if you, if you want to try to compare it to something, you know, so it's, you know, I'm granted now I'm married and, <laughs> taking care of the baby mama <laughs> because that's what I got to do um, to Guyana, you know? And so, you know, it's, it's a bit disingenuous, the analogy, but you know, it does make some sense. And if you're on the ground or you're working in Guyana, it, it resonates. Definitely. Um, so, so in, in lieu of that, I'm wondering, could you kind of contextualize, I guess, the Guyana story to give other listeners kind of a bit of context here with regards to, you know, other regions that you think they can kind of use as metaphors here or maybe as anti-metaphors as well to just like understand what, what is kind of Guyana going through as, you know, as a baby that's kind of like being birthed in some sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, you'd look at, there's some great pictures and, and stuff, you know, if you go look at Dubai 30 years ago, you look at Shanghai 30 years ago, you know, the, the, the countries that you look at today and, and what was there, you don't even recognize it. You know, there's some amazing pictures on the internet about it, you know, and then you look at countries, you know, so that what happened in 30 years in China and Russia or excuse me, China and Singapore and Dubai, you know, that's going to happen in 10 years in Guyana, you know, but to that point, there's still capacity that needs to be built. There's still rules and regulations. Like, I mean, up until this year, you still couldn't sell condos in Guyana. You know what I mean? Like the legislation's not there for that. You know, there still wasn't robust banking systems. So, you know, there's still, you know, PO financing and accounts receivable financing and, and equipment leasing are still pretty unheard of banking needs. And anywhere else in the world that's that's needed, that, you know, that's been around forever and everyone uses it. You know, and this just goes to show the underdevelopment of the country and still how it has to get its legs under us. You know, just because you have a pile of money sitting in a bank account and you know a pile of money's coming doesn't mean you have the capacity today to build everything. You know, mm -hmm. the, one of the things that I love about this administration is that they've just, since they took office, literally road building equipment is running 24 hours a day and hasn't stopped since Brilliant. they took office in 2020. And that is such an important factor because when you have a country of, you know, 82 to 86,000 square miles, I always mess it up, um, that ultimately, you know, that amount of infrastructure that is just needs to be developed. You know, I mean, 95% of all the people in Guyana 
currently live within three miles of a major river or the ocean. You know, and that's wow. 95% of 800,000 people. And it's spread across, you know, 10 municipal DMAs, you know, or 10 cities across the country. Um, but 90% of them all live in one city, Georgetown, in the suburbs. And so with that, you know, there's that infrastructure needs to be built so that you can have those roads so that you can quickly go out. And, you know, if you're running a, uh, if you're building a hotel, right. And, you know, the road that you're going on is a dirt road and your, yeah. your trucks are breaking down every week. Do you realize how one broken down truck and the implication that'll have on a $25 million hotel project? I mean, that's, if you know, and this is where we wear the hat of both an asset manager and an operator because we don't just monitor the money and manage the money. We actually know that those are some of the issues you have to be mindful of. And so this is why we've kind of pulled back a bit and haven't gone full out on our development projects and haven't gone full out on our real estate development yet because the infrastructure is not there. You know, when it already takes right now, if you build a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, that hotel, you have to buy the power equipment for that hotel the day you sign the loan paperwork. Because right now there's an 18 month lead time on the power conditioners and all the power that you need to dump into the hotel. Now that 18 months is getting it in Atlanta. You want to try to get that down in Guyana? You got the 18 months plus plus where you have to find it, do it, get it. And that's assuming that the rest of the project's on time. But mm -hmm. you know, when you have a country that could only do 50,000 TEUs of shipping, which that's a container, one TEU is one container for those that don't know. You know, historically the country's only been able to support 50,000 TEUs. And that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. They don't have the, the import infrastructure to support it. They don't have the deep water harbors. They don't have any of that. And so that's the kind of development that the country needs to see so that you can do it. You know, I look at Guyana and I'm a civilian. I don't work for any government agencies. I, you know, I'm just Steve Jasmine, the banker. Right. But I look at it as a, a, essentially the equivalent of a military battle plan for the development of the country. Mm -hmm. Anytime the military goes somewhere, before the soldiers get dropped behind the lines or before anything happens, the actual infrastructure has to be developed. You have to know that you can get, it's not about getting the soldiers into the, you know, you can, you can parachute someone out of a plane anywhere on this earth. You can put them in a rocket ship, you can get them up to space. But if you don't have the stuff up in space or you don't have the, the ability to quickly get them, the supplies, the food, the water, the, the fuel, everything, the power, the internet, you know, if you don't have all those things ready beforehand, you're just going to fall on your face. Your guys are going to end up, you know, starving before they even can make any impact. And so this is where we're very mindful of that. And it's also about building the right capacity given where the country's going. And so we'd spend a lot of time with our team studying frontier markets, studying the growth cycles, studying the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, and, and a lot of people come back and, you know, especially in the Caribbean say, oh, well, you know, Guyana was always the, you know, the bad son of the, the CARICOM, the Caribbean community. It's mini EU. And I joke and say, well, it was the poorest country in CARICOM up until, you know, five years ago and then, or seven years ago now, and now it's the richest country in the Caribbean. You know what I mean? And it, it, it's, it's trouncing, you know, Trinidad's oil industry. It's trouncing, you know, Jamaica. I mean, look at just the, the real GDP of the countries. I mean, it's, it's pretty jaw-dropping, you know what I mean? But the GDP per capita in Jamaica, which is considered a developed nation, it's number two on the Heritage Index for Latin America, last time I checked, is 5,000 U.S. in 2021. Mm -hmm. You know, Guyana was 10,000 U.S. in 2021. And that's after it only skyrocketed since about 2005. 
So since 2005, it's gone sub 2000, closer to about $1,500, all the way up to 10,000 in 2021. It took Jamaica since 1985 to get to 5,000 GDP, real GDP per capita. You know, and the, and the aggregate GDP for the country in Jamaica is 14 billion. In Guyana, it's 8 billion this year. And in Trinidad, it's 25 billion. And that's because Trinidad's a currently petrochemical producing nation. You know, I mean, they're already much further in their life cycle. They're at the other end of it. They're closer to where Louisiana was when Louisiana got involved. The difference is, is that the section of Louisiana I worked in was purely for the offshore oil and gas. But in America, all the petrochemical industry is actually out in Lake Charles over on the Texas border. And so that section of the oil field services growth in the United States did not contract much like the oil field services in Louisiana did or in Southern Louisiana for the offshore servicing because all those petrochemical facilities are onshore. In Trinidad, all those petrochemical facilities are still up and running and are producing. So you've got methanol plants, you've got um, uh, methanol, you've got urea, you've got uh, diesel plants, gas to liquid plants, all these things are running, but ultimately Trinidad has its own host of issues. It's got mm-hmm. currency control issues. It's got, you know, they've been producing, I, I saw at one point a statistic, $100 billion of oil has been produced out of Trinidad that the government's seen. And so they've got 100 years that they've had oil wealth, they've utilized it, they've grown their economy. But even then, they're still sitting at, you know, a real GDP of only $16,000 per person per capita. And so with that, you now have, when you look at the three GDPs together, you've got Jamaica, which is, you know, 5,000 per capita. You've got Guyana, 10,000, and you've got Trinidad, 16,000. Guyana, inside of three years, will blow Trinidad out of the water. I guarantee you, it'll be closer to $30,000. $30, and there's going to have to see, you know, two, you know, two to 300,000 people come into the country to help build the country. You know, the government of Guyana is still working on the technologies and the mm. tools and the legislation the capacity building to be able to produce that. And so let me stop there, but hopefully some of these stats help put things in perspective and kind of give you some more analysis of what's going on in the region so we can have a great conversation. Oh, they, they definitely do add kind of color to the kind of leapfrogging that's kind of going on there. Uh, if we may just dig a bit deeper into the kind of capacity building, if we were to categorize some things or kind of you know, give color to it in terms of you know sharing some fragments, of examples or case studies of things that are in the pipeline right now when it comes to capacity building. So you mentioned, for example, the roads being built, right? Uh, would you be able to kind of cite one or two things that you think uh, are indicative of like the the pace of capacity building that's kind of happening in a positive sense? And then also on top of that, we'd love to know uh, what are some things that you think are yet to be done, given that there is, as mentioned, this you know entire market map that's not been created yet when it comes to kind of core infrastructure. What are some things that haven't been you know, prioritized right now because obviously you only have so much capacity to build capacity. So I'm curious about those two buckets of things. One being, again, things in the pipeline and things that you think should be in the pipeline in the future. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, uh, uh, an indigenous group in Guyana of a partnership emerged, Energy and the Freedom Hoop shore base project. So in 2020, in, in March of 2020, exactly three years ago now, um, there was a disputed election in Guyana. That was resolved in August of 2020, right in the middle of COVID. And so since then, there was uh, three major families in Guyana teamed up together and are partnered with Exxon 
to build a massive shore base. And they teamed up with a, a Dutch contractor that's going to, that's literally building an Island in the middle of the Demerara river to put this on. And that is a perfect example of the pioneering or the, the first early stage capacity building that occurred is that, you know, we're less than three years from when the changing government occurred. And there's already literally a small Island that they're reclaiming. That's going to be like the Palm Islands out in Dubai. Oh, wow. They're not turning it into, you know, residential real estate or hotels. They're turning it into an industrial zone to do all the lay down yards and everything else. And so with that, what that's created is that they, they were smart enough. The country was smart enough. And I, I would like to think it's the current political party and, and give them props for it. But I know this was conversations with both political parties. But they came, fo- they stepped forward and saw a need and they addressed it. And so by building that deep water harbor and that shore base, because it's actually a shore base, it's not a deep water harbor, but they're going to have a full container terminals and everything. You know, the roads is another example of, you know, early capacity building that's occurred. You know, one of the first things that was talked about, there's two other major marquee projects, I think, that really highlight this is, you know, they've been trying to build a bridge across the Demerara River for the past 10 years now plus. And they're finally at the point where they've broken ground and they've started that. They've awarded the contracts. They've gone to a Chinese EPC. And that bridge will now be the, the new bridge that connects the east coast and west coast of the Demerara River, which are where the two major populations sit right at the mouth of the, the, the Demerara River, which is where Georgetown is. And so that's another piece of massive capacity building that had to occur, that is occurring. And the last one I would say is the the one ID system that they're creating. So they're using technology to create essentially a single window or a single card access that all Guyanese and all foreign nationals will be able to use for the development of the country, much like they have in Dubai. And so that single card will become a single card and app that will allow them much like they use in China, much like they use in the middle East to make sure that people are paying their taxes, that they're tracking who's coming and going you know, the problem mm-hmm. with Guyana is it's such a massive country. It's got such a porous border. You can't protect it. And when you're the only country, think of Guyana as like a life raft that's emerged out of Latin America and the Caribbean because every other economy is sinking like a, a stone. You know, there's no growth. They're all struggling. They're, there's there's no place to actually invest your money to get a return because everything's so late in the cycle and hit a, reach, a plateau of stagflation. And so with that, Guyana is that growth, but in order to do that growth, the government needs to control it in some way or form. And so this one technology window that they're creating with this government ID is a perfect example of them pulling that together and creating the environment that will fuel the growth. So you need transportation, which they're doing with the roads and the bridges and the, um, and there's actually a fifth one. So you got the transportation with the roads and the bridges that I highlighted. You've got the technology piece. And then you also have the, um, the power piece because the cost of power in Guyana is so expensive. It's 40 plus cents a kilowatt hour now, which is wow. huge by the rest of the world standards. And so one of the first things the, the administration came in and, and focused on was leveraging all the produced gas, which is a very key term, produced natural gas from the oil wells. Cause every time you drill an oil well, they find gas. And so that gas ends up getting re-injected into the well so that you can get the fluids out, the oil out faster but at a certain point, you either have to flare it off or you have to pipe it to shore. And so that's what Exxon and the government in Guyana are working is to pipe that natural gas to shore so that they can create a processing plant 
and then they can create also a, a power plant that's 300 megawatts. So Guyana is currently sitting at about 350 megawatts of power that they consume, and this power plant is going to double that. It's going to lower the cost of gas from, or the cost of power from 40 plus cents a kilowatt hour down to roughly six to nine cents a kilowatt hour. You know, it's still going to take another two or three years to come online, but Exxon is supporting it. The government's working on it. The vendors are go they're going through the process, and so in that process, they're once again rolling up their sleeves and really focused on where are we going and let's create the enabling stuff. Have they hit everything? No. You know, there's you got to crawl before you walk and you got to walk before you run. And so what I see, knowing everything that's going on, I don't know everything, but I've got a good read of kind of what's developing and what's not. You know, there still needs to be additional investments made in the shore bases. Um, you know, personally, I'm not a big fan of oil and gas shore bases. I don't think they're profitable long term from an asset management perspective. Um, you know, they're, they're weird contracts. They're, they're really done at the, the behest and the leverage of the international oil companies. And so you as a developer, or you as the guy that runs it, doesn't get the most favorable economics. You know, if there's only one or two, it works great. But as the market matures and everyone has them, then everyone, you know, everyone, it gets turned into condos. And so I, I guarantee you that, you know, over the next two decades, a lot of these shore bases will be turned into condos. Um, you know, but that's part of the development cycle. Like when you build a shore base, you know that one day you're actually going to turn it into condos, much like what they did in New York with Hell's Kitchen and Greenwich Village and all those other areas where they, you know, they go in and turn an industrial zone into a dense urban living area that's highly profitable. Um, you know, I think the other area that needs a lot of development still is in general the the financial services sector, I think is very underdeveloped in Guyana. It's, you know, when I first got there, you know, five and a half years ago, six years ago now, you know, they, they couldn't take American Express anywhere. You know, oh, wow. Bank of America was, had pulled out of the country and my visa card wouldn't, didn't work anywhere. Um, you know, and I had a, I went to the, I went to the bank and got an ATM card and it didn't have visa or MasterCard on it. You know, and I, I, I didn't even know what that meant <laughs> because I grew up in a world that, you know, every debit card you were ever given, you know, could be used at any visa or MasterCard outlet. Um, you know, so these kinds of things are where the capacity still needs to be built, but you know, why would you focus on building the payments networks when you still don't have that single window that you can integrate with so that you can quickly get access to everyone? You know, so once again, yes. it's a crawl, walk, run mentality. Doesn't mean we're not working on some of those things along the way and, and are involved in different projects to that degree. But that being said, we are so close to the ground and knowing what's going on that we know that it's not quite there yet. It's not that time yet, you know, and so... These are just some of the issues and challenges that we see coming abroad. But, you know, hopefully the context helps give some, you know, insights as to, to where the country is on this journey and, and how we're participating in it. Fantastic. If we were just to dig slightly deeper on the financial services side of things, one thing uh, you mentioned before was the like equipment leasing frameworks and some other kind of sub frameworks, uh, not just on the fintech side of things, but I'm, I'm curious. Are there other things within that, within financial services that specifically kind of call out to you beyond just kind of payment rails um, that you kind of find exciting over the next, you know, couple of years as it kind of seeks to mature? I know you mentioned something about kind of public markets as well, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's uh, the whole financial services sector is completely underdeveloped or not developed at all, quite frankly. And so to that end, there's a lot of opportunities, you know, right now in Guyana, you can't separate a more, as far as I know, I could be wrong. They could have changed it, but I don't think they have. You can't separate a mortgage from servicing. And so, you know, in America, you go to a, you buy a house, that house loan is sent to 
one asset owner that owns the mortgage, it gets paid a dividend, and a, a third party that actually manages that asset on behalf of the institutions. And yep. so th- those kinds of things you don't really think of as a big issue. But if you're trying to scale home ownership, you can't have the guys that loan the money, rent them, you know, manage the payments of the money on a monthly basis. It's not efficient. You know, the guys that want to invest in that just want to invest in yield and they just want to get a check every month. They don't want to worry about having to collect it. Right now, though, the way the government of Guyana has structured it is you have to be the guy that collects the money and seasons the paper. And so those kinds of little things end up having a pretty, you know, material effect on the ability for it to scale. And so, you know, in an area where the government and that's the government's done a phenomenal job of going in and, you know, increasing home ownership and building a lot of low income housing. And, you know, it's been a priority of this government. And it's a pretty common thing in the Caribbean to to focus on, you know, enabling home ownership for the underserved and the under on the unbanked population. But now it's a situation where, okay, we have all that, but we've got to really roll up our sleeves because there's a lot of pieces missing to this equation. And so, you know, how do we start working on the second phase and the third phase when we're finally coming out of the first phase? And that's that's really where our focus is as asset managers and working with the, the powers of PETA to understand where the country's going so that we can be best positioned to, to support it. Awesome. So, so I'll just contextualize the kind of housing thing because I found this interesting statistic from the budget speech. Here it says um, last year they distributed over 20,000 house lots, which is about three times the previous amount that have been distributed over the last five years. So that just kind of shows that kind of increase in velocity, not just again in production, but also in the way in which they're kind of reinvesting in their human capital and ensuring that the people, you know, have low cost of housing, the ability to kind of reinvest in other things as well, uh, accordingly, which is incredibly exciting. Uh, One question I have here then is, and I guess this is where we kind of dig into, you know, the strategic mind of Stephen Jasmine. I'm curious, how is it that you've kind of gone about positioning uh, your firm and your efforts and essentially the Stephen Jasmine portfolio that's moving towards, you know, building this iconic entity that helps shape and also capture some of the growth of Guyana as well. Um, would you be able to kind of like dig into that uh, in terms of, I guess, like high level strategy, but also like whatever you want to kind of share in yeah. terms of the kind of subcomponents? So no, our SC3's investment thesis in Guyana is, is it's really straightforward. You know, we want to own the high margin professional services companies that help pull together this infrastructure. And so this is, you know, the investment banking side and the capital markets advisory. This is the commercial real estate development as a developer. This is the construction management as a GC and as, you know, working with the government to help oversee. Because people don't realize this, but when you build a road, generally speaking, the government also hires a third party or themselves to go in and check to make sure that road's built properly mm-hmm. and to meet the, the specs and the quota and, and everything that they're supposed to. And so there's a lot of opportunities when you're building infrastructure to come in and advise and counsel and make sure that people are, you know, from an audit perspective, making sure that people are doing what they said, just saying what they do and conforming. And when you have somewhere where the growth is happening so quickly, those are sometimes where things get dropped. But the counter argument to that is now those kinds of situations are where there's opportunity because with technology nowadays, you can streamline approval processes so much quicker. You can really, you know, put the policies and procedures in place to track everything globally. And so we look at that as, you know, that's where we want to be in the high margins at the top. And then we also want to be at the operating companies at the base of it. And so, you know, if they're going to be pouring cement every day for the next 20 years 
well, yeah, it makes sense to be involved in the cement industry, either as a vendor or as a supplier or somewhere in that supply chain. You know, one of the big things is these petrochemical plants need staffing, you know, and there's going to be an under, there's an under, there's a scarcity of qualified engineers that are capable of actually operating these assets for the international oil companies. And because of the Guyanese local content registration and the local content secretariat, you know, they have to be Guyanese based and Guyanese involved. And so we've identified some key assets that we're looking to acquire and reposition to be able to pursue some of those, those needs. And so it's been a very opportunistic, organic kind of following of where we see the uh, see the, the needs. And then sometimes we'll be approached. You know what I mean? Like a year ago, we were approached by one group and they had some interesting things they needed help with. And so we said, sure. And we took them under our wing and we saw, you know, that they had the right assets. They had the right mindset. They knew where they were going and we could help add value. And so, you know, this was something that, you know, if you had asked me three years ago, if I'd ever touch it, I probably would have laughed at you and said, no, I, I don't see an, I don't see a way there for us to, to, you know, add value and to create value. Um, you know, but that said, you know, the beautiful thing about where we are positioned, sitting at that link between global asset managers and global markets and everyone that's been there and done it before that wants to go do it again. We now become a key part of that conversation. And so, you know, every week we've got investors and partners and people flying in and, you know, we tell people, you know, we want you to go see the country yourself, you know, so come in. We'd like to be your first and your last meeting. So, you know, my partners on the ground are always around and, and they'll usually take a, a meeting with anyone that comes in, you know, early in their trip. And then usually by the end of the trip, they sit with us and, you know, we talk through stuff and we can either help add value or it's no thanks. We're going to do it on our own and we wish them the best and let them know we're here or it's, you know, Ghana is not for us. And so, which is fine because it, it's usually Ghana is not for us right now. It will be mm. tomorrow. We just don't have the testicular fortitude to, to see it through this phase of the cycle. And we say, okay, yeah. well, next time you come in, hit us up, you know, keep track of us, watch us and let us, you know, execute and be successful. And you can get on the bus anytime you want, you know, cause that's why I tell people at the end of the day, you know, we're driving a bus. It's our bus. We focus on our race and our pace. You know, we're not out there trying to keep up with everyone. Everyone's story is different. You know, what we found historically in Guyana is it's not any one ethnic group or tribal group or, religious group but it's a country of a lot of talk and no action it's everyone's got big dreams but doesn't know how to execute and we specialize in knowing how to execute so we'd like to just talk 10 percent of the time and and work 90 percent of the time that's why i only do one of these interviews probably once every six months if not longer because ultimately me hitting the the, the press circuits doesn't accomplish anything you know i mean no. i do these more because i know when investment committees and global asset managers are you know looking to hand me money to manage on behalf of them they have other people that have to that know nothing about Guyana that need to know about Guyana. And that's what I make these for is for the investment committees, because, you know, I'm not allowed as an asset manager, how this business works, as you know, we're not ever allowed to talk to most of the people that decide whether we get the money because there's a firewall there. It's a, it's a conflict of interest. And so they want to be insulated and protected. And that's great. And I respect that. And it's not because we're working with the legitimate money. We're working with some of the most legitimate money in the world. It's the fact that, you know, it's corporate governance is what it's called. And it's, it's, it's allows the people that, dole out the money to have to be held accountable to people behind the scenes that are able to underwrite and look at what needs to happen. And so in those kinds of instances, you know, we're focused on telling the story to them. And so with that though, you know, SC3's real value prop is that, you know, we're not just an asset manager, but we're also an operating partner. And that's where, in my opinion, in frontier markets, you have to sit in both seats. You know, yes, you can be a Mark Mobius and you can travel the world investing in frontier markets and emerging markets 
But at the end of the day, you got a bunch of money tied up in China, you got a bunch of money tied up in Brazil, and you got a bunch of money tied up in India. You know what I mean? That's great. That's fine. But in my opinion, those aren't emerging markets. It's a misnomer. You know what I mean? They're, 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 you know, what we saw in the 08 to 09, you know, recession is the BRICS did come. There was a flight to quality. There was a flight to actual real growth. There was tangible growth. And in all those countries, the real growth did occur, but not the kind of growth that Guyana's occurring. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a whole different ballgame if you look at it from an orders of magnitude size. And so Guyana going through that growth as a percentage of the size of its economy and where it's going, that's where there's excitement and that's where there's opportunity. And it's not for everyone, you know? And so our job is to go out there and, and be a resource and be a thought partner. And, you know, we try to lead as best we can and you always best to lead from the front. And, you know, we try to produce decent reports and, and quality content and, you know, are slowly just fostering, a following and fostering relationships with global asset managers and knowing that, you know, yeah, nine out of 10 people I talked to today aren't going to be happy with Guyana today, but in three, five, seven years, they're going to come back. And I see it happen every day. Like, you know, it's, it's funny over six years, you know, you forget the number of conversations you've had, you forget the people you run into, but they end up coming back wanting more information or wanting updates and seeing what's happening. And it's exciting to be able to show them how far you've come because when you're in your own echo chamber, and you're focused on your race and your pace, you forget how much the story's changed just over three years and how far you've come and the quality of what you're working on has evolved. You know what I mean? Because it's these aren't just ideas on a business plan anymore. They're, they're real businesses with real assets and real people involved and, you know, real bankers wanting to fund them and grow them and everyone's looking to come in. So we just got to stay focused on positioning ourselves properly. Most definitely. I think one thing I appreciate there in particular is the kind of active approach of, you know, combined financial components, but also the operational components as well. It strikes me that, you know, one of the observations that a lot of folks who invest in frontier and emerging markets make is the uh, liquid markets, like say, for example, the MSCI kind of frontier index, or you look at kind of um, liquid exposure to say publicly listed companies in Indonesia or other countries. And it doesn't correlate with the structural growth that actually takes place. A lot of the growth happens in private companies. And uh, if one is an investor in that kind of like, you know, spray and pray kind of way, only gaining exposure to things that uh, are almost easy to come by versus like putting in the work oneself. Um, there's missed out alpha, so to speak, in that context. But also I'd say uh, in your case, it's also like, deeply meaningful as you kind of have seen the last five years of transition and you'll be able to shape the next you know, two decades, three decades of, um, of, of, of the country. So I think that's incredibly exciting. Um, one question that I want to kind of follow up on was we were talking about capacity building, we were talking about timelines. I'm curious in terms of, you know, on a micro sense for your firm, what does the timeline kind of look like as you've kind of been uh, building these different business units out? And I'm curious also about, um, you mentioned, and I, I, this really struck me as incredibly smart and cogent here, is, you know, how to wait for the kind of inflection point in infrastructure such that it makes sense to build X or Y, right? And I think, you know, an anecdote that came to mind there was Elon Musk, for example, when it came to building uh, Tesla, um, the, the, not him, but the actual original founders, before building Tesla, they actually waited like five years for the cost of battery um, uh, storage to go down to a certain point where they had enough confidence and said, okay, now this is economically feasible to build. And so that type of patience where you're aware of the curves, you've done the kind of intelligence work in terms of you know mapping things out in your case mapping out infrastructure etc um 
that kind of informs, okay, knowing when to pounce versus just being misinformed and jumping in too early. Because, you know, being too early is equivalent to being wrong in some sense. So I'm curious, what does the timeline both backwards looking in the last five years look like for you guys? Like, you know, main milestones and accomplishments or kind of, you know, things of kind of significance there. But then also, what do you think the timeline will look like in, say, the next five years, you know, 10 years? I know uh, no one can tell anything, but I'm just curious as to how you kind of perceive that story. Yeah, no, it's the reality is, is no one actually has the answer and it's all just conjecture and, and hopes and prayers. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's, I would have thought if you'd asked me five years ago, even if you asked me today, you know, would you have accomplished more in five years? I would have swore up and down that we'd be 10 miles further down the line than we are today. Um, that said, we have been very prudent about kind of staying out of the fray and letting the country get its legs under us, you know, for better or worse. And part of that's been because we had to, but all part of it's also just getting to know the business environment in the Caribbean, you know? And so from that perspective, we've, we've really kind of sat back and waited and patiently, you know, to your point, you know, if you're early, you missed it, you may as well have missed it. And that's, that's Mark Cuban has a great quote on this. And he says, you know, the key to winning in life is staying in the game long enough to win. And mm. that's the biggest thing in Guyana is that my team and I, have consciously made the decision. You know, I've self-financed this all out of my own balance sheet and with some of our first clients and partners that have come in, but, you know, the bank is still ours. And so with that being said, and, and the platforms that we're building are still ours. And I've done that on purpose because, you know, when you take outside capital, it starts to put you on a cadence and a, a, a trajectory that if you're not, if you don't wait for the right time and you're too early, then you're just burning capital. And in my yeah. business, I'm only as good as my last deal, and I'm only a steward of, you know, of I'm a steward of capital, and so as an asset manager, and so being a steward of capital and and, and growth, you know, you only want to borrow or take the money that it's going to take to to pour gas on the fire. You don't want to figure it out. And this comes from my startup background. When you look at startups doing product market fit and all that kind of stuff, you know, at the end of the day, we've spent millions of dollars over the past five and a half years to get us where we are, but that's not anywhere near, you know, had I raised $10 million of outside money and poured it on this fire, the fire would have burned bright for a short amount of time, but I don't think we would necessarily be any further than we are today by any significant orders of magnitude, other than I'd have some investor that was really pissed off at me and I'd have a bunch of, you know, people that, you know, were, were cranky over the fact that we were, you know, someone had their hand in the till and we had mismanaged, not mismanaged their funds, but the timing didn't match up. And so, we have an obligation now in the future that we have to hit that's not that the actual funds that came into it had no correlation to. And that's where people start getting irritated when you have to start paying people back when they had nothing, they didn't contribute to where you are in the journey. And so I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it kind of is how we approach the problem and how we face the challenges is that we've kind of self-financed it ourselves so that we could stay in the game. And I didn't have someone trying to force me to make irresponsible decisions or, you know, go into a project to lose money because the market, you know, I couldn't get the boat, the equipment across the, the, the GRA deck. GRA is the, the tax authority in Guyana. You know, so when you bring something in, it's going to be cleared by customs. It's going to, you got to pay your taxes on it if any are due, you know, and without the infrastructure to support it, I'd just be burning money on a $20 million hotel that isn't ready, you know, and there's been one hotel that's been built and all the kudos in the world to, you know, the family that did it. And the Pegasus Suites in Guyana, you know, they went out and they built it and 
Badal did a phenomenal job with it, and he's he should be very proud. And I, I wish more Guyanese had had the foresight and the leadership to do what he's done. But he's also, you know, when I got to Guyana, I thought everyone was like Badal. But the reality is, is that he's one of the few that actually knows how to work in the capital markets, that has spends enough time in Trinidad to know how to tap into the capital markets. So he was able to go do the first hotel in Guyana, and he got it up and running. It came in a year late and over budget, and you know, it was a it was a stressful, scary project. I'm sure for him. I wasn't in the room. I don't know but I know enough about development to know how it works and, you know, when you lose money or when you make money. And, you know, but now at the same token, I've heard, and this is pure hearsay, you know, that sometimes the the, the penthouse suite at the new hotel goes for $10,000 a night. You know what I mean? Like, do you realize that the, the, the Ramada Inn, I was paying for a presidential suite, I was paying $120 a night in oh, 2017. Wow. Like I stayed at the presidential seat for six months. I bought it out on a long-term lease. And so, you know, when I was there, that's, that's a big discrepancy. One night versus a month for a third of that, you know, I mean, like that just goes to show how quickly things are changing. And even if that price is half of it, it's not being rented every day for that. But anytime there's a major conference, people use it, you know, people that need to use those things and are willing to pay for them. And so this is the opportunity where, you know, is every hotel that's built going to have a $10,000 a night penthouse? No, that's not the case. First of all, most of them shouldn't because they're not spec to that. You know, he's got a, a, a high-end property right on the water and it's beautiful. And he built a $100 million hotel so he can charge, you know, $10,000 a night. But, you know, most hotels aren't going to price at that. They're not going to do that. And that's where, you know, once again, you've got to understand the environment and realize when it is the right time to build something, when it's not, and how you can throw your hat in the ring and compete. But there's enough to go around. You know, if there were four more hotels right now, they'd all be booked out 24-7, you know, but they're coming up with other ideas. They're doing a lot with, you know, uh, VRBOs and the and the Airbnbs and stuff. And there's Airbnb villages that are being created in Guyana where, you oh, know, nice. Canadian entrepreneurs are going out and building, you know, 20 houses. And they're, you know, they're going to put a security guard. They're going to build a fence around it. And they're essentially hotel rooms or extended stay hotel rooms. You know what I mean? Like this is where, you know, us as Westerners have to kind of, step out of our bubble and see what can work in Guyana because you may not need to go straight there. I know you spent some time in Africa, you know, it's a perfect example of, you know, there's in Africa's telecom industry, there's no copper wiring. There's no, you know, POTS lines. It's all just digital. It went straight from no cell phone, no telef no telephony or telecom infrastructure straight to, you know, 5G and cell phones and, you know, everyone having a computer on their hand. And that's, um, and I've had, you know, a bunch of really good questions and concerns and, and, and challenges, but they've also really worked hard to, you know, see where the opportunities are and see where it's going. Is this making sense? I mean, oh, most definitely. I think, uh, the thing that stands out and I'll kind of, you know, flag for, uh, listeners here is, um, the playbook you've kind of deployed in terms of ensuring not just that you're in the game but that you've got kind of exposure to uh the region such that you can kind of watch and know when the time is right so to speak and uh, a good kind of example of this is brookfield asset management does a similar thing where when they kind of expanded into india and china in recent um you know decade they essentially have two branches to their business right branch a is their balance sheet itself that they kind of deploy into hard assets and they aim to kind of earn a yield from that and then branch b is the asset management side of things where they manage external money and deploy it into the kind of you know creme de la creme of the deals that they kind of come across now they don't want to as you mentioned use investor money uh or external investor money or lp money 
on deals that they haven't really fully understood in ecosystems, they don't understand. Absolutely. What do they do instead? Well, they, for example, when they went to India, they set up an office and spent four to five years getting to know the ecosystem. They spent four to five years getting to know which lawyers, which you know, um, professional services we kind of affiliate with. What does it mean to do deals here? How do the deals work? And also building their own internal model of what deals are the types of things they want to engage in and they don't, right? And you know, the ability to do that is something which is you know not something you've wanted at. Like you are using your balance sheet right now to kind of build that. That's a, in many respects a capability and a moat that you have that many others don't, right? And so I think that enables your firm, for example, to build that kind of durable edge that uh, many others won't, and therefore enables you to do things that others won't be able to do as well, which is an incredibly exciting thing. But also it's important because uh, that's part of the kind of you know excitement of the frontier markets, right? It's like you have these spaces where you can do that if you're willing to do the hard thing to get there. So um, I do appreciate you sharing that with me. A few things that I was hoping for us to kind of get to before we kind of get to the end. Um, in particular, I was hoping to kind of just like run a few prompts in terms of industry verticals and get your thoughts on them. Uh, first one being, you mentioned the framework, the, the kind of user identity framework that Guyana's government is kind of coming up with. In terms of the general ecosystem and kind of state of IT and fintech and kind of tech infrastructure, are there any other developments that kind of come to mind? Or what are your thoughts on that kind of ecosystem more broadly? Or is it very much like bottlenecked by that right now and then things will emerge afterwards? I think it's a bit bottlenecked. I think it's, you know, it's just, there's only so many hours in the day and you can only choose to focus on so many things, especially when you have a country that is trying to understand and grow into itself in a lot of different ways simultaneously. You can't put the cart before the horse. You've got to crawl before you walk, before you run. And I yes. think that's one of the key things, you know, there's, it's funny, you know, you look at a country and it's, it, there's no right or wrong answer here. And there's a lot of things scattered all over the place, but, you know, to your point, much like Brookfield did when they went into to India, you know, when I was here so early and working and, and studying and putting the first projects together and, you know, seeing everything, I noticed that, believe it or not, the, one of the most developed pieces of legislation in Guyana is their credit reporting agency. And it's because it was actually done by a company sort of like Equifax out of Europe and mm -hmm. they came in and they helped provide the model legislation for Guyana so that they could quickly put up a credit reporting act. And so with that credit reporting act, here you have a very underdeveloped judiciary, a very underdeveloped legislative you know, act as far as the country's concerned. But then there's this one piece of shining legislation that um, there's this one piece of shining legislation that all of a sudden makes it all make sense. And you're like, how, and it's funny because I talk to people and they're like the most prolific evolved piece of legislation is about credit reporting. Like how do yeah. they have credit reporting? They don't have consumer credit. Like there's no, <laughs> the country doesn't like, huh? And so that disconnect, you know, but there is a big consumer lending market. You know, you look at courts, home furniture, courts is a, essentially like a rooms to go style, you know, Appliance center, it's a little more full service, but they have, you know, everything from appliances to contacts and everything. But throughout the Caribbean, Unicomer is the parent company. You know, they ha they have a whole, you know, buy here, pay here product that they offer. It's not through the banking industry, but that's part of what necessitated the need for the international credit reporting company to come in and put this infrastructure in place. So I say that to use that as an example of, you know, everything needs to be raised to that bar. But over time, there's already certain pieces that are, and there's certain pieces missing. 
So mm-hmm. everything else will start to s- s- rise. The rising tide raises all ships. And so, but it's, yes, you can't, you can't start walking or crawling until you're born. You know what I mean? So they're, they're, they're going through the process and it's a slow process and it's deliberate and it always takes 10 times longer than you expect and costs 50 times as much. But that's where, you know, there are some great opportunities and there's some great lessons, you know, but the research curse that Ghana is questioned with or played with is real, you know, but at the same token, when you look at the Caribbean and Latin America and South America, by all metrics, Guyana is just going to, when you're already at the bottom, you know, of the ring, there's nowhere to go but up. And that's what oh, people that. forget about Guyana. You know what I mean? And in this day and age, you know, when it starts talking about corruption or, you know, is Guyana going to the way of the Norway, Norway or Venezuela, you know, or Nigeria and Venezuela versus Norway, you know, I'll tell you right now, Guyana will never be fucking Norway. You know what I mean? It just won't. You know, Guyana will be Guyana. And that means yeah, it has to find its own path to the market. It has to find its own unique brand and identity. And But because of the world we live in now, where you can walk into any meeting and there's anyone in the room could have a recording device, and it's happened. The, the scandals have been out there, not just in Guyana, globally. You know, But with that, transparency has become such a key in this world that we live in. And it, we're, we're shifting, especially as, you know, the Middle East becomes kind of a, is going through a renaissance or a new dawn. And you're looking at, you know, the, the bricks of this financial meltdown, Guyana is a part of it, but Guyana is a footnote. The real people leading this evolution are going to be, you know, the GCC and oh, UAE, Saudi, you know, Qatar. These are the countries that are now coming into their own. And these are the BRICS 2.0. And they're trying to act themselves almost as a pincher between the BRICS and the U.S. petrodollar. And they're sitting at the fulcrum between the two. And that's a very unique position. And only time will tell where it goes. But in this world of post-2000s Islamophobia and everything else, it's really refreshing to see these countries that hadn't changed in hundreds of years going through some changes overnight. And through new leadership, through good leadership – much like Guyana, you know, is a perfect leadership? No, there's no perfect leader. There's not, you know I mean? We all have strengths and weaknesses. You know, I'm not a CEO. I'm a chairman. You know I mean? I'm not a details guy. I can't manage myself, let alone a thousand other people. You know, that's not what I do. My job is to, to create products, create value, manage the product, put the right teams in place and be a steward of capital. That's what I get up every day working on. And that's, you know, but my job is to look out over the bow and see what's coming in front of us. And that's where I feel like a lot of people get so caught up in running on the rat wheel. And I guess this is my years of being a consultant for Fortune 500 companies and everything. I learned how to, you know, I don't work in today. I operate today, but I work three quarters ahead, six quarters ahead, two years ahead. Like I'm always, you know, there's what needs to get done today, but then there's what I'm working on for tomorrow. And I spend the majority of my time on what I'm working on for tomorrow, or I'm waiting for today to happen so that I can continue to plant more seeds for tomorrow. Because sometimes you have to stop focusing on tomorrow to babysit what needs to close today. But then once today closes, it creates, it's sort of like a, a chart or a graph where you got stair steps, you know? And so when you look at it, there's the todays and it just goes up, plateaus, goes up, plateaus, goes up, plateaus. And so mm-hmm. as you're going through those plateaus, there's the spurts of growth where, and that's where, you know, the balance of working on today and tomorrow come into play. And I think that's where, you know, people don't take that longer kind of 10,000 foot view 
they try to get in the weeds and focus. And this is where we really work to solidify that and bring it together closely. Brilliant. So uh, one thing I'll just get back on is you mentioned the uh, model legislation from the credit company. And the project that I worked on, the main project I worked on when I was working at this think tank called the Charter City Institute, which is kind of dedicated towards uh, improving legislative frameworks and the general kind of finance ecosystem around developing new cities, um, was actually looking at, uh, I forget the name of the institution, but there are a couple of institutions in the US that had a lot of model legislation out there and kind of like figuring out which ones we wanted to kind of pick and use as boilerplates for ourselves. And I think it's a totally underrated kind of lever for, as I mentioned, unlocking growth when done in the right way. And so I'll tie that with the observation on the GCC, which is my friend, he's he, he went to Saudi Arabia earlier this year to go to their minerals conference. And he came out of it and his family's kind of like now working on um, a junior mining company that's kind of dedicated towards that region. And the reason why is because they've just set out this new agenda where they're aiming to be, you know, t- they aim to gain exposure to the energy transition. And in doing so, they realize, oh, you know, lithium and you know, rare earth metals are really the closest thing in terms of core competency with kind of extracting oil for them to do that. And so that aim is really to build like a tier one jurisdiction in that vein when it comes to the legislation, the financing, the investment laws, et cetera. And uh, I'm, I'm, as mentioned, just very impressed with like a lot of the kind of activity that goes on there in terms of the combination of kind of like prudence and and understanding of like what makes a commercially viable ecosystem. So uh, yeah, I appreciate you flagging that. No, absolutely. And it's, it's true that, you know, those ecosystems are developing you know, you think of it, look at Saudi. It's got a population of 40 million people. The entire Caribbean doesn't have that many people. You know no. what I mean? And so when you look at it from that perspective, yeah, Saudi's always going to be a million miles ahead. And you can't compare Guyana to Saudi. But that doesn't mean that Saudi investors and people in the GCC don't want access to Guyana because, to your point, they're looking to expand. They've never gone through a period of colonialism globally. And I know that's kind of a, a weird thing to wrap your head around, but colonialism's always stemmed out of Europe. It's not stemmed out of China or the GCC historically or America. Mm-hmm. You know, you can say America went colonialism when it went, you know, to Panama and, and, and set up itself as a strategic leader of the, of the world. But ultimately, you know, this is a new era. It's a new world that we're, you know, that we're coming into and the power dynamics are shifting and they're going to change. And the best, the important thing is that Guyana is in the play as a part of that. It's not the story. It's a part of the story. It's a critical part of the story. And for where we're positioned, we're excited to take advantage of it. But that doesn't mean we're not going to do stuff in other markets as well. You know what I mean? There's opportunities in Venezuela. There's opportunities in Ukraine. There's opportunities out in the Middle East. There's opportunities in Africa. You know, the one thing I'll say is that because the democratization of information and the ability for guys like us to go anywhere in the world now in a way that we couldn't do 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago is creating that, you know, they always say sunshine is the best disinfectant. And so as you're building these systems and as you're, you know, there's opportunities for them to be taken advantage of if they're not done right. But when you have so many people looking at them and so many people focusing on them, it's hard to hide or sweep things under the rug and make them disappear. You know what I mean? In a world where there's, you know, checks and balances occur as a result of people holding each other accountable. And sometimes the pendulum swings too far one way or the other. But, you know, one of the things I like about where Guyana is sitting is that there's some certain inherent pieces of the story that will prevent it from becoming a Venezuela or a Nigeria. 
you know, it doesn't have the amount of population. It doesn't have, a, it's got a lot of headwinds that those countries have that Guyana doesn't have. And so yes. as it goes through this process, despite it being just as tribal as some of these other countries, you know, I believe because of the technology, because of the information access, because of the 24 seven nature of things happening, you know, it's amazing. Even in, in cities like Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm based when I'm not on the road with my family, you know, towers are going up in, in months now that used to take years. You know what I mean? Like literally massive high rise towers. Now it's still going to take two years to build a similar property in Guyana. But the fact is it's happening so much quicker. Everything's happening quicker. We're in a, def- we're, we're actually in a period of global deflation. And that's part of why we're having all these challenges globally is that mm-hmm. this deflation that's occurring is affecting everyone. And the only place to counter deflation is with growth. And the only places that I personally see growth over the next 10 years are Guyana and the Middle East. That's really where my focus is, you know, and then Ukraine, once Russia and Ukraine, you know, rebuilding Europe, if you will, will be a big place. But historically, you know, in America, where are you going to go to see to grow? You know, as a developer, as a developer, do you need to build this fifth holiday in, in in Orlando? Yes, because prices in Orlando are through the roof right now. But at the end of the day, you're not sure if you need it. But in a country that's got more GDP growing at such a fast rate, they need more hotels. They don't yeah. have enough capacity. You know, it's the theory of constraints. You know, it's a great book I read in college where you got to look through the system and find all the spots of constraint because that's where there's opportunity to make money by widening the, that pie. You know, if you think of the, gov- the the country of Guyana as a circle and you draw a circle on a piece of paper, you know, that's how much capacity can go through it currently. But if you, if you increase that circle by 5x, 6x, 10x, the percentages go down. But the quantity goes up, and that's what's happening in Guyana right now, is that the quantity and the orders of magnitude are all increasing dramatically, and the pie is shrinking, but there's not enough that no one can gobble the whole pie, and that's what people don't realize. And that's what, you know, some people are afraid the government of Guyana and the country and the businessmen of Guyana are trying to be very secular and not let anyone else in. I would say that that's not the case at all. It's more, no one wants to come in because the, the environment's not prime to start sprinting and running and most money is based on returns that have to happen this quarter and can't be patient you know i mean when you're an asset manager you need predictability and you need you know you need infrastructure there to support guaranteed returns yes as one of the leading asset managers in guyana i still can't point to anything anywhere that shows what kind of returns an investor can make by investing in guyana Mm. and they found oil almost 10 years ago now they've been producing oil since 2019 and they still can't actually give this information to anyone. So one of my favorite papers is by Howard Marks, and it's entitled "You Can't Eat IRR," and it talks about the you know constraints that uh, surround like different wrappers of money. Um, the thing, the kind of like uh, you know green light that comes to mind here is that the ideal form of capital here is like some permanent capital vehicles, like yours, for example, um, but also uh, family offices um, seem to be firms that maybe would be interested in that type of exposure um, or, or, or dif- ones that want to differentiate themselves could kind of take that perspective that's slightly less uh, institutionally bound by what our liabilities next year um, will be. Uh, if that's totally misinformed, do tell me. Um, that being said, to kind of wrap this up, I was just thinking about hitting two more uh, quick prompts and then sure. any final notes you have that you want to kind of share with listeners would love to kind of like have you share those one was you know we were talking about stagflation just now we we're talking about kind of like 
periods of low growth, high growth. Uh, one of the you know things that in my trip in Eswatini and talking to other folks who uh, spend time in kind of developing nations is there is this aspiration very much to not just develop a commodity based boom and economy, but also one that really kind of goes hard on manufacturing as well. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on whether there is any policy. Again, I, I, I'd imagine this fits very much with the kind of, you know, crawling, walking, running framework. But I'm curious, is there anything that's kind of being discussed right now as it relates to developing a stronger manufacturing sector? Are there any kind of like seeds being planted on that front? Um, what are your thoughts on kind of the, the manufacturing side of things in, in the country? Manufacturing is entirely predicated on your cost of power. And so once again, like crawl, walk, run. Crawl is get the 200 mile or the 100 mile deep water pipeline, the 300 megawatt power plant online so that you can start walking and building that manufacturing. Because anywhere in the world, if you look at oil and gas supply chains, you know, look, and I go to Saudi because I do a lot of business there and I know the country rather well. You know, if you look at Sabic and Saudi Aramco, those are two different companies. Sabic is all petrochemicals. That's the refineries. They make the urea. They make water. They, they make everything, you know, out of the, that comes, once the oil is out of the ground, then they refine it and turn it into, you know, everything from plastics to, you know, energy. And so with that, you know, once again, we're going through this process. Now, I believe, you know, once again, technology is a great thing. One of the first partnerships we were involved in is putting together with one of our partners in the UAE. It's for a construction technology that, is these biaxial avoided slabs. And so when you're pouring cement everywhere, what's the best thing to do? If you can figure out a technology that decreases the amount of cement you use, who cares if your power costs are higher? Because if you're saving that much money on the technology, you can offset it. So one container of this product creates 200 square meters of slabs, for whether they're building stories or they're you know just pure manufacturing buildings. But doing that, that technology then saves the equivalent of 60 transit mix cement trucks. Wow. And so you're now removing 60 trucks off of the roads in Guyana because you now have this technology. So where our focus is, to your point, is how can we plant seeds and find investments that will and partnerships and technologies that Guyana can use today, irregardless of the market environment, because the, the economics of it just make that much sense. And so even if I have to pay... 60 cents a kilowatt hour to make this stuff reliably because I can't trust the grid. So I've got to bring in my own generation system and I got to buy my own fuel for it. And that just increases your costs. That's mm-hmm. fine because the replacement of it is 60 transit mix cement trucks, which that's a hundred thousand dollars. So in what it costs normally, like that product will cost $60,000 for the equivalent of it. So that's a net $40,000. So if I have to spend an extra five grand in technology, I'm still net 35,000 in profit on that. So mm-hmm. it's that's where we're finding some of these technology things and some of these manufacturing opportunities that we can bring in earlier in the life cycle because it matches where the market is. Now, you can't do a commoditized thing, like if you want to create a plastic bottling plant to sell all the Coca-Cola in the country, that already exists and someone's already doing it. And that's a commodity price. And we're not going to be able to compete at that level. So if we're asked to partner or do something there, we say, well, take your money, but that doesn't make sense. It's not the right time. This is where you have to trust us as an asset manager to find the right things. And so I don't know if that answers your question at all, and I'm sorry to pontificate on it, but it's... Oh, it definitely does. I, I, I would say the um, uh, particularly interesting thing there was you mentioned the... Um, when, when you go into the numbers, 
the the kind of cherry on top is that if costs do go down as expected when the kind of power line goes up, your margin just expands, you know, an order of magnitude. And that's 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 where that move is beautiful because you get in early, you've kind of saved your downside through that margin of safety, and then on top of that, um, you know, as you're there on the ground, kind of helping, uh, you know, build the business community, you know, be, be a participant in it, but also like the the infrastructure being developed. Um, that just elevates significantly. So that's a very exciting venture-like prospect or distressed debt almost, you know, type of like a, a return profile there. Um, final uh, thing then that I want to ask about before getting into any final kind of comments is uh, the education side of things. What do, do the educational institutions look like? What does the, uh, uh, you mentioned kind of your vocational training for petrochemicals. I'm curious, like what does kind of like Stephen's market landscape look like um, right now on that front in terms of the development of the human capital, which is like the core thing, you know, it's a place of 800,000 people. Um, curious about your thoughts on, on that. It's, it's interesting because it's uh, once again, like everything in Guyana, the, the educational markets, a tabula rasa, it's a blank tablet, you know, like all frontier markets, you know, the, the successful and wealthy normally figure out a way to send their kids outside the country to go get education. And when they leave, usually they don't come back. You know, and that, that's every country in the Caribbean, that's every country in Latin America, that's all the APAC countries, that's all of Africa. You know, it's the same story everywhere. Um, that's why places like London and New York are the melting pots of the world. And so, you know, with, when it comes to the Guyanese diaspora, the main places where they reside are Toronto, New York, Miami, and London. Those are really the four main ones. Um, and there's some others, but, you know, it, South Florida kind of it expands a bit. But holistically, those are the, the areas where you need to focus. And, and with that, there's a lot of growth that needs to happen. I was blessed to be able to, to lecture at the University of Guyana in, in an entrepreneurship class, and it was it was a lot of fun. And I I learned a lot, and you know I met some great people. And you know what I've realized is that you know everyone in Guyana that wants to become a millionaire, U.S. dollar millionaire, and wants to do the work and put the effort in, can figure out a way to become it. You know, I mean, there's no one that can't participate in this. Um, you know, education is a critical component, but with the, with the access to technology, the access to information, the, uh, you know, you just got to want it. And so what I find is that in a lot of times in these frontier markets, there's just not a lack of appreciation for living outside of your comfort zone and for doing that kind of research and, 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 and rolling up your sleeves and doing that work, you know, and it's part of it is you don't know what you don't know. And yeah. if you didn't grow up in this environment, then you don't know how to, to search and look for things. And, and with technology today, and everything just being at your fingertips, you know, there's so much that people take for granted. And that's one thing that I would say, you know, I'm turning 40 this year. You know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in that old world still where, where most people today, you know, don't realize, you know, couldn't understand how to do anything on a computer. Because back in the day, like I couldn't get the Internet working on my computer unless I knew how to, to set the kernel entries to have a modem on my Linux box. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that probably means nothing to most people that know tech, that don't know tech. But, you know, like those problem solving skills are why I sit where I sit and I'm lucky to be sitting where I sit. You know, and I think it's a challenge for even people like yourself who never had to figure that stuff out. You know what I mean? And, and it puts them in a disadvantaged state because when everything's handed to you on a, a silver platter, when it comes to information, you're not used to having to dig it. You know, I know you're like me and we're, we're cut from the same cloth, but how many people will read a research report? And leave it at that. When I open a mm -hmm. research report, you know, the first thing I do is I read all the footnotes and I go oh, and in Google, I, I, I search for the referenced articles in the footnotes and I download all them before I even read the first report because, and I read them all and I figure out which reports are pertinent to what I'm looking for and studying and, and kind of this, is my analysis background and analyst background. But 
by doing that, I get a much bigger worldview and I start to see where people pulled this stuff from and how they learned and I'm going to their source material, you know, but once again, that's an intellectual curiosity that you don't get in school. You know, I didn't learn at school how to do that. I learned that if I want more information, this is how I get more information. And it's because of my thirst for knowledge. So I think one of the big mistakes is yes, education is the silver bullet. It's how you create a middle class. You know, the two, there's three ways to create a middle class education, home ownership, and a, a stock market. And so those are the three things that I believe need to be cornerstones to Guyana's going forth path. And we want to participate in that and we want to help that. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for educational financing, you know, in the private sector to help pay for a lot of these, you know, on the job training and everything. And yes, it's, you know, it has to be a relationship that makes sense for the, the owner of the school, the financier of the school and the people attending the school. It can't just be a one-sided relationship, but in those instances, and you have to realize that, you know, out of 10 students that come in, three of the students may never pay their loan. So the ones, the students that did have to offset the students that didn't. And so and that's that why the returns are so high, you know, and people don't take a step back. All they say is, oh, why am I going to pay, you know, $25,000 to learn how to weld? Well, if you've got guaranteed job placement and someone's financing that $25,000 for you, because you could go pay for it yourself for $7,500, but you don't want to. So they'll charge you $25,000. But the way the contract works is that it, you only have to pay for it if you stay in the industry. If you don't use your card, you turn it in and they forgive the debt. You know what I mean? And that's the kind of situation where that's where you start to change the, the, the conversation and you change the worldview and the mindset. But you can't come in and start casting everyone that's doing this in a bad light because if they weren't there doing it, who else is going to train these people to do what they need to do? How do you totally. build these? How do you create productive members of society from all skills, all backgrounds, all levels of understanding and experience? You know what I mean? And that doesn't mean to say that someone from a wealthy family doesn't want to go to that school and get training on it, but vocational schools... That's where you become, that's where you learn the trades. They call them trade schools. You know, that's where you learn how to do this. And so these are the opportunities where Guyana will continue to evolve, has to focus on this. You know, there are, there is a deep respect amongst the Guyanese for education. You know, they, they do appreciate it. They value it. Um, I think that is a credit to, you know, the diversity of the country and, and how everyone plays together, you know, but at the same day, at the same token, you know, it's not... You don't need to go to college. I mean, I'm a big follower of Gary Vee. Love what he does. Think he hits probably about 85% on target all the time with anything he says or comes out of his mouth. And with that, you know, he says you don't need to go to school to be an entrepreneur. If you've got yeah. that first knowledge and you want to roll up your sleeves, do the work and you'll get there. You know what I mean? Like what I learned at Emory, you know, 20 years ago, I remember and I studied, but, you know, and you're in school right now, so you get it, you know, but when you're out in the real world, it's the actual real world environment that really teaches you and trains you. And so the biggest thing I can ever tell anyone is just get out there and do it, you know, find the right people, learn mentors and all that kind of stuff are all part of it. But, and that goes for whether you're working in Guyana or you're working in Timbuktu or you're working in London in the city, you know what I mean? Like the principles are the same. There's fundamentals of every system. All this is, is a system that me and my team have figured out how to position ourselves to leverage and take advantage of and to help evolve and build. And so that's where we feel we're creating the value and, and how we're doing it. And we're, we're looking forward to helping, you know, and at the end of the day, it's not just Guyana, it's the entire Caribbean is going to participate in this because that's one thing we haven't talked about, but how the rest of CARICOM is going to participate and kind of ride the coattails of Guyana is a critical story here that no one's really talking about it in, you know, the Island politics that exist where, you know, everyone likes to throw shade and, 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 and kind of gossip and, and, and throw crap around is, is fine. 
but that's not reality. Reality is, is a rising tide raises all ships. And so there's not enough, you know, when there's no part of the reason that our headquarters is in Jamaica is because there's no place in Guyana that has that capacity for us on a financial services side. So if I want to hire auditors, if I want to hire that, that stuff has to come to Guyana and we're going to be one of the leading groups that brings it to Guyana through all the projects and all the investments that we have. But ultimately that knowledge and mindset and worldview isn't in Guyana yet. So why am I going to set up an office that I can't hire anyone to work at when I can hire them in Jamaica and in Trinidad to do the work and then transfer that knowledge down to Guyana and bring the people into Guyana and get them up to that level? Because of course, it's always going to be cheaper to have someone in Guyana working on this than paying someone in Jamaica to work on it. Not just from a GDP standpoint or, you know, wages and salaries and everything, but just from a knowledge and experience. You want the people close to the source. You know what yes. I mean? And yes, there's some skills that can be, you know, run from afar and in this mobile world that we live in and in this virtual world. And, you know, um, it, you can do a lot more, but still, when you're actually building a country and the power goes out and internet goes down, you've got to be on the ground there solving these problems and working on it. And that's where, you know, we're supporting it, but you've got to get the whole capacity there lifted. And so, you know, when 20 people graduate out of UG, uh, University of Guyana every year with a, a law degree, and that's a, that's a class of 20 people. Well, at the end of the day, that's over five years. That's a hundred new lawyers that are going to be producing Guyana. A hundred lawyers is nowhere near the amount of lawyers that are going to need to build the country of Guyana. True. And that's five years worth of lawyers who also have to come out, get trained, learn their craft, get the skill set, learn how to build, learn how to do all their work. And that's not, you know, splitting it up between those that go work for the government, those that go work for the financial services sector, those that work for the insurance industry, those that do the construction, the M&A. You know, the business law, the litigation. I mean, there's a lot of different buckets that those hundred people have to go sit in. Definitely. I ha, That last part has triggered so many thoughts. And I'm kind of frustrated that we kind of are coming to the time constraints here. Um, I, I, I will share some of them in the show notes and I'll kind of like share them with you as well. I think there's a fascinating kind of, you know, educational experiment being run in Sierra Leone right now when it comes to kind of crowding in new forms of financing to... Uh, essentially have like performance-based contracting amongst multiple parties to see who can kind of serve the student better, right? There's other kind of, you know, innovations as well when it comes to developing human capital on, you mentioned kind of like the trade school level, like decomposing. Uh, what do like deep vocational kind of educations look like here? There's a company called uh, Open Skills X, which is just kind of recently launched, which uh, focuses on far more like the kind of like hard manufacturing and hard industry types of things versus what's typically on kind of like a K through 12 syllabus. Um, that being said, I think it's best to, for, for myself, not to kind of get into that. And uh, I will just finally kind of like leave this with a final kind of prompt and note. Is there anything you would like to share uh, with our listeners, Stephen? It's been incredible uh, talking over the last half hour and a half. No, I, I thank you for the time and I look forward to, you know, helping any way I can. I'm really easy guy to find online. I'm, you know, you find my email, it's sjasmin, J-A-S-M-I-N, at sc3.ltd. The website's sc3.ltd, and I'm on LinkedIn pretty heavily, so most of our content distribution and stuff happens over on LinkedIn. And um, excited for the journey, and thank you for the time, and just always looking to meet great asset managers and, and people playing in the frontier and emerging market space. And congratulations on what you've accomplished so far, Krishan. Wonderful. Deeply appreciated, Stephen. Wishing you the best, and uh, speak soon. Cheers.